Hey, we're starting this series called Just Wondering. Pastor Charlie told you about it. This series was birthed out of some of the questions he's been receiving in recent weeks, some of the things he's been preaching and teaching, and people are asking questions. And so he became convicted that we need to begin to answer questions for people who are asking Maybe difficult questions, maybe they're simple, straightforward questions, but nevertheless, questions that people need to answer. This series is titled Just Wondering. It's not just wandering. We don't want to be wandering around with, you know, through the Bible or through the wilderness or anywhere, but where people say, well, I'm just wondering about, and then they ask the question. So that's where we're jumping off here. Thirteen questions we're going to answer. And during the course of this 13 weeks, uh, we may come up with some other questions and answers that need to be addressed. And Pastor Charlie will be working on addressing those if he chooses or believes God leads us to do more than these 13. But questions like, is the Bible reliable? Is Jesus really the Messiah? Or is he just a good guy? Uh, Do all roads lead to heaven? Uh, Everybody thinks they're going to heaven on their own path. Uh, Who or what is the Holy Spirit and what in the world does he do? Uh, Does God really forgive sin? In case you think that's an elementary question, we get that question all the time. Well, I sin a lot. And so, do you think God can really forgive all of my sin? Uh, So we're going to help answer that. Will I be judged? Things like that. Thirteen weeks. Questions you need answers to. Questions family and friends are asking. And here's our reason. We want to help you answer those questions so you can get to the biggie. What will you do with Jesus Christ? Sometimes those questions cloud the real question that people need answered, and that is, what do they need to do about Jesus Christ? I'll ask you today to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy, if you have a Bible with you. 2 Timothy, New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And here's, here's the deal. Let's make, a, let's make a little deal together. All right? If you'll listen quickly... I'll speak quickly. (laughs) I didn't say short. I just said quickly. You know, the volume of words, all right? But I have lots and lots of Scripture today. Because when we address the question we're going to address today, is the Bible reliable? Then we need to look at a lot of Scripture to determine, is the Bible reliable? Can we trust the Bible? And so, if you'll open to 2 Timothy 3... Then here's, here's what I'll ask you to do with the rest of the 25 or 30 or whatever scriptures that I'll share with you and offload at a high rate of speed. When they come up on the screen, when I refer to them, all you need to do is jot down. If I say in Psalm chapter 12, verse 6, you go Psalm 12, 6, because it'll be up there on the screen. Uh, and you just track with me that way. And when we get done today, I'll ask two groups of people to go home and study those scriptures, okay? The first group of people I'll ask to go home and read all of those and check me out to see if what I'm saying is right and true is a group of people who would say, I'm not really sure the Bible is reliable. Um, I don't know if I can trust it to give me answers for life. That group of people, all of you who are here, I'll ask you to go home, read all of these scriptures. The people who will say, hey, the Bible is reliable, I trust it. I'm going to ask you to go home read all of these scriptures. You know why? Because you have friends who'll say, I'm not so sure I trust the Bible. I'm not so sure the Bible's relevant for my life. So that should be pretty much every one of us. I had to do all those scriptures this week. You get to do them next week, okay? But anyway, if you'll do that, we'll get through all of these, 
And you just open 2 Timothy on your lap there and follow with me. All right. Our position here at Fellowship of the Rockies on this question, is the Bible reliable? It's the foundation for all the other 12 questions in this series. Is the Bible reliable? Our answer is one word. Guess what that word is? Uh, I almost heard you. That word is? Yes. Yes. That's our answer. Here's why. Let me share with you four scriptures just to launch this whole thing. 2 Timothy 3, 16. You have it in front of you if you have your Bible open. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's pretty serious life if it's breathed out by God. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, that the woman of God, that the boy of God, that the girl of God, he was writing to Pastor Timothy, so he said Timothy was a man, so he said man, but that doesn't let anybody else off the hook. So that the person who has given their life to Jesus Christ, who belongs to God, may be competent or complete, equipped for every good Work. That's any good work he calls us to. The scripture will equip us. Psalm 12, verse 6 says this The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace, purified seven times. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says it this way Every word of God proves true. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says this The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand how long? Forever. That's what we believe about Scripture. It's breathed out by God. The, the words of God are pure words. The words of God prove true. And the Word of God will stand forever. Now, when we talk with people, and I'm sure this happens to you as well, they'll say, oh, but isn't the Bible full of errors? Well, my first clue is if they say, isn't it full of errors, then they don't have any in mind. They just heard somebody say that it must be. But if they say the Bible is full of errors... My challenge always is, show me the errors. Now, I'll tell you this much. I'm not the Bible answer man. Uh, None of us as pastors on staff have all the answers to every question in the Bible. For instance, people will say, uh, you know, there was Adam and Eve, and then they had two kids, Cain and Abel, two boys. And so people will, and then all of a sudden, there was a wife for Cain. And everybody thinks, where did she come from? And so we get that question. Where, where did Cain's wife crumb, come from? Steve Allen gave me the answer to that. It's, um, I would tell you if I were able. Okay, there you go. <clears throat> Cain, Abel, you'll get it in a minute. <laughs> um, if, it was a bad joke. Blame it on Steve Allen, okay? It's his fault. But other than questions like that, that we know no one knows the answer to. There are, there are questions people have about the Bible, but I find often people are assuming that the Bible, as big as it is, long as it is, that it must have some errors in it or just these gross contradictions that render it useless or unusable or unreliable. Our answer for this is, yes, the Bible's reliable, We love God's Word. We believe it. We believe it wasn't just a book written by people that happened to gain prominence over a a long period of time, but rather it's God's Word to us. We can know that it's reliable. And I want to give you today four reasons, not the only reasons, but the four main reasons as best I can understand it 
that the Bible's reliable. First of all, the Bible's unique. There's not another document like the Bible in existence of history of the human beings. It has so much variety and a high degree of authenticity. Psalm 119 says it this way, verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Let me paint a picture. This is one aspect of the uniqueness of Scripture. I take it in, and it is sweet to my spiritual taste buds, and it nourishes me for what I need to grow, to love God, to be who He wants me to be. Two verses later says this, Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. And not only nourishes me, but it is the light that illuminates where I'm supposed to be going. It will help me be where I should be, when I should be there. The words of the Bible, literally, for those of us who are born again, who are believers, become a close friend, become a trusted guide, become our nourishment, our food for every day of every week. Two ways the Bible's unique. Not the only ways, but let me give you a couple of the ways I think the Bible is very unique. First of all, it's unique in its excellence. Uh, yeah, I think it's unique because of the literary excellence, the, the writing of the Scripture. They're beautiful metaphors in the book of Proverbs. I challenge you to read the Proverbs. There's unbelievable worship poetry in the Psalms. There are amazing word pictures in Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the other prophets. It's been translated into hundreds of languages. It's become the world's all-time bestseller. It's not really one book. It really is a library of 66 books written by 40 authors over a period of 1,500, 1,600 years. Written originally in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and translated into hundreds of languages, like I said earlier. And we believe the Holy Spirit is no accident that the Holy Spirit has, has kept, has protected the excellence and uniqueness of Scripture. It's unique in its excellence, we believe. But also, and this is the biggie for me, it's unique in its focus. 66 books, 40 human writers, by the way, 40 writers, one author, the Holy Spirit of God. 1,500 plus years, the Bible has a unified focus. L- let me give you the focus in one word, and then I'll give you the longer explanation. The unified focus of all of Scripture is one word. What do you think that word is? Thank you, Troy. (laughs) That's it. Jesus. Write it down. The focus is Jesus. Now, here's the, uh, the expanded version of that. It's God revealing himself to us through Jesus Christ, who's the Messiah, who offers us salvation. But if you can't remember all of that and don't care to remember all of that, please remember the first one, Jesus. Think about it. If you have Let's say you have 40 different doctors. You assemble these doctors over, say, a period of 20 years. You choose any disease, any medical subject. And you ask those doctors to write on causes, diagnosis, prescription, cure of this disease. Any uh, 40 doctors, even in the same year, if you want to move that challenge in more closely. There's no way on the face of this earth you could get 66 articles out of those 40 doctors that were in absolute agreement, especially, uh, well, just no way it would be, but especially in the medical community where it's constantly changing. But the world is constantly changing, and the Holy Spirit of God 
in the focus of Scripture, kept 40 human writers over nearly 1,600 years focused on one thing, that's Jesus. Consider these things, okay, just to illustrate it. Isaiah 53, written about 700 B.C., <clears throat> predicted the death of Jesus. Kind of a long passage, but stay with me. Isaiah 53, verse, beginning verse 3, says, He was despised and rejected by men. Now, there are a lot of people who have been despised and rejected, but keep building the case. A man of sorrows, <clears throat> acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now, we're kind of turning the corner here. There's no one who's carried all the grief and sorrows of all humanity except Jesus. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. A lot of people have been wounded, but not for the transgressions of the whole world. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Are you starting to get the picture that 700 years before Jesus chose to come and be born in, as a human being, that Isaiah, under the power of the Holy Spirit, knew who was coming exactly? All we, like sheep, verse 6, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. No human in history had the iniquity of all humankind laid on him or her except Jesus. Matthew in about 50 A.D., so well over 700 years later, tells the details and the death of the Messiah. Guess what? He's reporting historically, and you might as well be reading Isaiah, written 750 years earlier. It is the same. The focus is Jesus. It matches up. Leviticus gives us the details of the priesthood began in the early days of the nation of Israel. The book of Hebrews gives us the perfect, completed priesthood of Jesus Christ. Guess what? All of the Levitical priesthood lines up as a picture of all that Jesus did once and for all. They had to do it over and over and over again in Leviticus in that time, but Jesus did that once for all for us. It lines up. The focus is Jesus. In the book of Daniel, written about 500 B.C., he wrote of, end, wrote of the end times and the Messiah. Pastor Charlie's been preaching through the, the rapture of the church, the great tribulation, the uh, return of Christ, the second coming of Christ in the recent weeks. Guess what? All of the material in the book of Daniel written 500 B.C. and the book of Revelation written by the Apostle John in about 95 A.D., so 600 years apart, guess what? The Holy Spirit's vision to both of them, one and the same matches up, identical. It's about Jesus. So the Bible's unique in its focus. Second, the Bible's accurate. Now, I'm not here to say that the Bible is a textbook on every subject. It's not. It's not God's design even for the Bible. But we've already determined the Bible's focus is Jesus, but we're not trying to make it be a textbook on everything. But let me give you three things where I believe when the Bible speaks, just to illustrate, when the Bible speaks, it's accurate. It's accurate historically. You check the history. The Bible wasn't intended to contain all history, even of the nation of Israel. Uh, though it chronicles a lot of Israel's history, it doesn't contain every detail, but what it contains is accurate. The New Testament speaks about Jesus coming, Jesus living his life, a perfect life, Jesus giving his life so he, he could pay the price for our sins, Jesus being buried for three days, Jesus 
with his own power, rising from the dead, so he could conquer death, hell, and sin, and offer us eternal life. And all of that history, not every fact is reported during that time, but all that is reported is accurate. Second, scientifically, and this is probably the place that most people say, well, science and the Bible just don't agree. I, I believe that. I agree with that. Science doesn't always agree with the Bible. But I believe the Bible always agrees with the facts, whether of science or whatever. It may not agree with conjecture and theory, but it agrees with facts. Let me illustrate it. In 1615, a guy named William Harvey discovered that the circulation of the blood through the body is where the life is, that the life is actually in the blood. Guess what? About 3,000 years earlier, Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Hello? 3,000 years of people searching and looking. They could have seen it in Leviticus. The Bible tells us in Acts 7.22, speaking of a character named Moses from the Old Testament, it says, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Let me just give you one tidbit of the, the Egyptian beliefs during the time Moses was raised by adoptive parents in Egypt. They believed that the world, this sphere we live on, was hatched from some cosmic egg. It was the best you could come up with, I guess. But they believed it was hatched from a cosmic egg. Moses, in Genesis chapter 1, 1, when he recorded that, in spite of his teaching, the Holy Spirit got it right through Moses. He said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He didn't say, there's several different theories about what happened to cause the earth to be here. One of them is it was hatched from a cosmic egg. The other is some God created it. The other is primordial slime or whatever, you know, the Big Bang or anything. The Holy Spirit guided him. He got it right. For centuries, there was a wide variety of beliefs. First of all, that the earth was flat and that if you sailed far enough, you would sail off the edge of the earth. Uh, there were theories that someone named Atlas was holding up the earth and there were other theories about how the stars were actually riveted or held in place. And the Bible in Job says this. Chapter 26, verse 7 says, He, God, stretches out the north over the void. He just stretched it out over nothing. And he hangs the earth on nothing. They could have found their answer in the, in the book of Job. Isaiah forty twenty two tells us this. It is he, God, who sits above the what of the earth? Circle, not the flat of the earth, the circle of the earth. Some simple stuff, but the Bible got it right before we discovered it most of the time. Once again, the Bible gets it right uh, in, in the simple things. The elements that make up, uh, some, uh, 16 of the elements that make up our body are found in the earth, dirt. Interestingly enough, let's look at what the Bible says about that. We discover those 16 elements, and it's an amazing discovery. Here's what the Bible said in Genesis 2.7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature's creature. One minute, he was just dirt. The next minute, with the breath of God, he was a living creature. Genesis 3.19 says this, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now, don't get all caught up in eating sweat and bread and all of that. All that means is you, you work hard, you sweat, you'll earn your bread, you'll earn your food, okay? Go on past that part. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The Bible had it right long before people discovered the 16 elements that are in the earth that are in our bodies. 
The Bible is scientifically accurate. Here's the one that grabs me. The Bible is accurate prophetically. There's an amazing number of prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled later in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Over 270 of these prophecies in my research on, you know, I'm not so brilliant, but in my research with, you know, the, the computer software, um, 270 of those prophecies roughly are about Jesus Christ. Not to mention the hundreds and hundreds about the nation of Israel and other things. But I discovered, I just narrowed it down to the book of Isaiah. 30 plus related to Jesus in the book of Isaiah alone. Written over 700 years before Jesus came to the earth. And they all came to pass. Here are just a sampling of the accurate prophecies from the book of Isaiah. Stay with me. I'll give you four or five, okay? First, the birth of Christ. Isaiah seven fourteen says it this way. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Chapter 9, verse 6 says it again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah got it right. The preaching of John the Baptist, if you may remember, John the Baptist came before Jesus. He was Jesus' cousin physically by birth. And he came before Jesus and he went saying, There's one coming after me who's the Messiah, basically. Well, Isaiah got that right. Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John came saying that very thing, quoting that, because Isaiah knew that someone would go before Jesus and tell that he was coming. The third thing I point out for you out of Isaiah, Jesus was to be beaten and spat upon. Now, that's some pretty accurate stuff 700-plus years before it happens. It says in Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. That happened to Jesus. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. The fourth thing predicted that Jesus was, he prophesied that Jesus was to remain silent during his trial and before the crucifixion. Isaiah 53, 7 says it this way, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shearer silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's the way it happened. The fifth thing predicted the death of Jesus. I won't read this again. I just read Isaiah 53, 3 through 6 for you. But it says he was despised, rejected. Verse 4 says, surely he's borne our griefs and uh, carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God. Verse 5 says he was wounded. Verse 6 says we've all gone astray and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That could be about no one else but Jesus only a few of the prophecies I just shared with you. But those are the ones. There are others that speak about kings, about nations, about wars, about captivities. And they're accurate. They have come to pass. There are many yet to be fulfilled that we'll see in the end of time come to pass. And I believe just as accurately as all those that have already been fulfilled. So the Bible is accurate historically, scientifically, prophetically. The third thing. Not only is it unique and accurate, but it's authoritative. In other words, it speaks into our life with authority. Last week in our life groups, I gave the leaders uh, my working definition of spiritual authority. It's basically this. One who has any spiritual authority in your life is one who has earned or been granted the right 
to speak spiritual truth into your life in order to bring about obedience to the Lord. Now, that's kind of a long definition, but spiritual authority, someone who's earned or been granted the right to speak into your life, God, long ago, before time began, earned the right to speak into our lives, and he chooses to do it through his word. His word is authoritative. He has the right to speak into our life to bring about obedience, maturity, holiness, blessing, anything he chooses to do. Let me give you two aspects of the authority of God's word. Real simple ones, straightforward. The first one word is the Bible is authoritative personally. In other words, that's for the individual. That's for you individually. 2 Timothy 3.16 that I ask you to keep open on your lap there says this. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness that the person who belongs to God may be competent. That's the individual, okay? So God's word comes to me. It judges me. I don't judge it. I don't pick up God's word and say, let me read this today. Let me see if I think this is worth reading or effective or has anything to say to me. I come to God's word and say, let me read this, and it will tell me what needs to happen in my life for my good and for his glory. Both of those at the same time. It's not just for his glory, but it's for my good and his glory. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is supernatural enough. It can cut through my outward actions and say, well, Dwayne, I know you did that nice thing for this little lady, helped her across the street or whatever, but what was your motive? You see, it's hard for us to judge each other's motives, but it's easy for God's Word to judge our motives and judge it accurately. And so when he comes to me and he says, Dwayne, why did you do that nice thing? I I can't make up some lie and get by with it because his, his Word judges the thoughts and the intentions of my heart. So it's all like laid open and this super spotlight turned on it. And so it's there before me. It's there before God. And so when he says, Dwayne, why, why did you do that? It's apparent to me and it's apparent to God why I did that. He judges the intentions. He can take care of me personally. When he speaks authoritatively to me personally, then I need to pay attention. Okay, his word not only has authority personally, but it has authority corporately. Simple, straightforward. For the individual, and then I'm going to say for the church. Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy in, the, in 1 Timothy 4.16. He says this, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. The teaching was God's word, the scripture. Persist in this. In other words, don't give up. Keep on, keep on, keep on. And when you feel like giving up, don't give up. Persist in this, for by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers, the whole congregation. In other words, the corporate group who was listening to his teaching, the church where Pastor Timothy taught, he said, you'll save yourself and all those hearing. God not only has a right to use his word to speak into the church, but it's expected of his pastors and the elders of a church Anyone who's responsible for the spiritual well-being of a church, it is expected that we speak to the church from God's Word faithfully so the whole church can be transformed. Now, I understand that as I yield to the Lord and I'm transformed, and then 
each of you begin yielding to the Lord and you're transformed, that gradually the church will be transformed. I'm speaking of something a bit different here. I'm talking about a time when God's Word comes to us And it's going to typically come through a pastor who's listening to God. Then God's word comes to us as a church and we all corporately make a shift. Let me give you a very simple one, one that was relatively painless. They're not always this painless, but one that was relatively painless about three years ago. Pastor Charlie had been just searching God's word and became deeply convicted as as God's word ministered to him that we needed to be doing some things differently as it related to those people who are less fortunate than we are financially. That we need to be doing something different. God began to deal with him specifically about schools, about children, making a difference in some children's lives. The week he believed God was telling him to say something to all of us was the week, about the third week, that a lady who was the principal of Span Elementary on the east side here in Pueblo was in our service when he spoke about that deep desire God had been convicting him of and told us as the church, we need to be doing something about this. God's going to show us what it is, but we're going to do it. At the end of that service, that lady came down and said, you'll never believe this, but I've been praying for a year to hear what you just said. That began our partnership with Span Elementary School. Many of you have worked in that ministry. Steve Allen is the pastor responsible for our Impact Pueblo ministry. Beth Buchanan and Elisa Hill lead that ministry. God has done some amazing things because out of God's word, he convicted his pastor who spoke to his people. And corporately, the church made a shift that made a difference not only in us. All who work in that ministry are greatly blessed, but it makes a difference in the lives of the people in that school. Simple illustration, but God speaks corporately and he uses his word. The fourth and final thing, this is the one that may excite me the most because week by week I get the privilege of talking with people about their spiritual life, about their eternal destiny. The fourth thing I would say is we believe the Bible is reliable because it is life-giving. Now, not only life-giving for you, but for all of those you share it with. In John chapter 5, Jesus said this, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the Scriptures, that bear witness of me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He was offering them life. 2 Timothy 3.16 that you have open before you. All Scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It will give you life. 1 John chapter 1, let me share with you from four verses there. The Apostle John says, That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands. He's talking about Jesus. Concerning the word of life, he's equating Jesus with the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. Jesus was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. He came to the earth. That, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The Bible is life-giving. Let me give you two ways I believe it's life-giving. The first one is just straightforward, simple for every person on the face of the earth. It's life-giving in its principles for everyday life. I went to Proverbs chapter 15 because I just remembered 
that there are a lot of just good, simple, straightforward stuff there just to do kind of a test. I was amazed. In that one chapter, let me give you a few things. In verse 5, it says this. Remember, this is for any person, even an, an atheist who says there is no God. This will work. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent or smart, is wise. Hey, if you heed instruction, it helps you. I don't care if you love God or hate God. It will help you. In verse 18, (coughs) excuse me, verse 18, it says this about settling disagreements. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the one who's slow to anger quiets contention. Hey, if you're slow to anger, you can settle an argument even if you don't care about God. Uh, Verse 19, I love this one. It says, the way of a sluggard. You like that word? It's hard for me to say quickly. You just want to say, you sluggard. Someone who's super lazy, it's kind of a disdainful term, you know. Uh, The one who's sluggard is like a hedge of thorns. I'll bet some of you have had sluggards working for you in your business. Every time you come by that staff member or employee, they're just super lazy, and it's like walking on thorns. It's a pain to have somebody like that work for you and with you. But the path of the upright is a level highway. It's easy to walk on. All right, that makes sense for anybody, whether you're a Christian or not. A couple more, quickly. In verse 20, it speaks about father-mother-son relationships. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Uh, Family relationships will work better if you pay attention to the Bible. Uh, Wise advice, verse 22. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, your plans will succeed. That's assuming that you get wise counselors, not knuckleheads, morons. The Bible calls them fools. Don't go to those people for advice. But that works for anybody. And then verse 32 says, Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but the one who listens to reproof gains intelligence. That's true for every person on the face of the earth. But we need more than just good advice, don't we? We need the second kind of life-giving that the Scripture will give us, and that's it's life-giving in its ability to produce spiritual transformation. We don't need just advice for arguments. We need transformation. The first thing we need transformation for is to be saved from sin. First transformation is we need salvation. We need to be born again. Romans 10, 17 says this, faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. This is the old, if A equals B, take you back to some algebra here, okay? This is all I remember from freshman high school algebra. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Here it is. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing comes from the Word of Christ. So faith comes from the Word of Christ. Faith comes from His Word. 2 Timothy 3, the passage I've been going back to all morning. But as for you, verse 14, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise, not just wise, but wise for salvation, being born again through faith in Jesus Christ. We need salvation. But beyond that, we need, after we've been born again, have you noticed that we still struggle with sin? Anybody in here not struggle with sin? I think most everybody does, right? Shake your head this way if you do. This way if you don't. Okay, good, good. Nobody's lying. 
We struggle with sin, don't we? We need help. God's word is our primary source of help. God's chosen it that way. Look at this. Back to that passage I had you open. 2 Timothy 3.16. And I'll illustrate it. It says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's every person of God. So here's, here, here are the four words. Write, write those, jot those words out in the margin. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training. They're right here in the passage. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training. And I'll show you how straightforward the Bible is, but how helpful. That's not just a list of four words. I need this. Teaching. I need to be taught what the right path is so I can head that direction. But guess what? I'm a bit dull-witted. I'm a bit dull spiritually. And so I'm lured away by my own flesh or by the world or some other lie. And so I've been taught this is the way. But I think this looks pretty cool over here. And so I walk over on this path. Well, that gets me to the next word that the Bible will do for me. The Bible taught me what was right. But the second thing it will do is reprove me. That is to say, Dwayne, come back over here. Or it will say, Dwayne, that's the wrong path. That's the wrong way. Don't go there. Then beyond that, when I stop and listen long enough, it will say, that's the third thing, correction. It will say, the right path is back over here. Make a right turn. Head this way. Walk faster. And it will correct me. Then the last thing it will do, once I'm on this path again, is it will begin to train me how to stay on that path. Not to get on the other crazy path again. It's simple, straightforward. But God's Word is designed to help us to stop sinning and allow Him to grow us to be more like Him. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says it this way. Since we have these promises, that's the Word, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. These promises are His Word. His Word cleanses us, gives us the uh, holiness. It is supernatural. So, we believe the Bible's reliable because it's unique, accurate, authoritative, life-giving. First Thessalonians 2.13 says it very well. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And here's the kicker, which is at work in you believers. What it's saying is if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you will take this word, feed yourself, that it will work in you every day. When I sit down in the morning to life journal, and if you want to know what life journaling is, you can stop by the information kiosk, and they'll help you understand it. It's what our church does to feed ourselves God's Word. But every day when I sit down to life journal, I ask God, show me something you want to change in me today so I can be more like you. Guess what? Any of the days I'm paying attention and not distracted, He does it, and He uses His Word to do it. Will you bow your heads with me, please?